The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with uh, an old friend today. Uh, he hadn't been on the show for quite some time, and that's my fault, not his. Alan Shavatkin, welcome back, man. Mark, thanks. Great to be back with you. Uh, Alan, you, uh, after, after almost 20 years at the Professional Services Council, you vacated and went to private practice. So tell us what you're up to. Well, you're right. Uh, I'm all with a D.C. Uh, government contracts law firm called Nichols Lou. I've known this firm uh, for a while uh, before uh, they were nice enough to invite me to come over as a partner in the firm. I've been here 24 months. Uh, my responsibilities here, like most government contracts law firms, we do an awful lot of counseling with companies. Uh, all of that work is in the government contract space, helping companies in compliance with growth strategies, try to support the litigation uh, group, but uh, not do some of that myself. Okay, cool. So um, what we want to talk about today are your key rules of government contracting. Um, and you mercifully supplied me with a list. And these are important guidelines for people. So pay attention, folks. Uh, Alan, let's get started with know the current contracting rules because everybody assumes you do. You know, a lot of people think that the government rules don't change frequently. How accurate is that? It's completely inaccurate. And part of the challenge is that many people think they know that because they've been in this environment for a while uh, and they've been doing business, some very successfully, uh, that things don't change when, in fact, the acquisition rules change all the time. Uh, in the laws change a lot. We've talked about those previously. Uh, but here, the acquisition rules are constantly changing. Uh, even this week, there were seven procurement rules published, several of them final rules, that make some changes to the way the government interacts with the private sector in this contracting world. If you're not staying up with them, you run the risk of either not winning an award or finding yourself in some problems later. And we can talk about all kinds of protests that have been held, upheld by the Government Accountability Office or court cases where the, the courts have said, you didn't follow the rules, you're out. Okay. So, I mean, just the communications side, most people know that you can communicate with a contracting officer until the RFP is released. Some contracting officers are still leery about talking with contractors while the RFP is in the writing and research process. I run a group on a government marketing university called ideation. And we had a, a conversation there about does information on LinkedIn that's viewed by contracting officers count as communications during or after the RFP is released? So, I mean, this is publicly available information. It's like reading, you know, Wash Tech or Federal Computer Week or listening to Federal News Radio. 
it gets murky. Well, it does, and, and that sort of leads into my uh, my second rule: that is, neither ambiguity nor time uh, is a contractor's friend. And so, not to provide legal advice here, but uh, if it's not in the solicitation, it's not the official word from the government uh, as to a solicitation. So, if you read something in LinkedIn or uh, someone says, "I heard on." You know, Fed News Radio, the contracting, the senior procurement executive talking about something. That's great. Uh, many times that information is actionable, but it only becomes official when it shows up in those documents, whether it's the solicitation or the contract. And that's why I think ambiguity here, uh, uncertainty, if, there, if the solicitation itself isn't clear, uh, you want to take every step reasonable uh, to be clear based on your own strategy, based on a company's strategy. Now, okay. I just say that not every question should be asked and certainly not every question asked is going to be answered. Uh, so there's a little bit of art and a little bit of science behind this matter. Uh, but uh, generally ambiguity is not a friend of the contractor. Okay. So if you do all of your contracts in-house, how are you going to stay up to date? Are you monitoring the announcements on changes in the FAR? Do you have to monitor public law pertaining to contracts? I deal with a lot of smalls and the principal are still doing, you know, the, the responses. So how do you keep up if you're, especially if you're a smaller company? Subscribe to newsletters. I have two hats with, I haven't talked about this in a while, but when, when I came over here to Nichols Lou, in addition to being a partner in the firm, I'm also the president of a publishing uh, group called Pub Contract Group, PubK. We publish four newsletters, one on law, one on cyber, one on compliance, and one on M&A. Three of them, cyber, law, and compliance, come out daily. It's a summary. Uh, listen to Fed News Radio. Read. Um uh, You've, you've got to stay on top of these things uh, and, and you can describe and, and decide very quickly whether it's relevant and where the change is. I wouldn't spend a lot of time worrying about proposed rules or the political chatter, focus in on final actions uh, that are going to matter. And then uh, at the end, we'll talk about this, but uh, read, uh, uh, we, we publish a small newsletter. Lots of law firms are publishing all the time. I sometimes joke with my colleagues that I think they're in the publishing business, not the law practice business, because they're writing so much. But that's a good source of information, and you can distill that pretty quickly. Okay, so uh, I, I want you to go back to the public contracts group. Uh, is there a website where people can find this? Absolutely. PubK Group, dot com, And you'll see on that homepage a description about us a description about the four newsletters. It's a subscription based. So there's a, a charge for uh, each of those. Uh, it's available to uh, government uh, officials. A lot of uh, government agencies are subscribers as well as uh, law firms and contractors and, uh, and others. So uh, we, we, we're very pleased about uh, the, the subscription rate and we're always looking for more. Cool. And what's the Nichols Lou website so uh, people can go read your blogs? Similar. Uh, Nichols, N-I-C-H-O-L-S-L-I-U dot com. Cool. 
All right, we're going to go ahead and take our first break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with uh, my good friend Alan Shabodkin of Nichols Lou, formerly the EVP and General Counsel of the Professional okay. Services Council. And Al- Alan was there for forever. And prior to that, he was on the Hill. So when he talks about this stuff, you know, there's not a lot of people who know more. So uh, thanks, Alan. And we'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with my friend Alan Shavodkin. Uh I'm glad you can't. Well, I wish you could hear the outtakes because uh, Alan and I go back and, and our conversations tend to be wide ranging, but we're trying to focus here. So uh, the next one of your key rules, Alan, is oral comments are not worth the paper they're printed on. So <laughs> I love that. I may borrow it sometime if you don't mind. No. Um, but what do, you, what do you mean here? Well, we hear a lot that as I engage with uh, offices, whether they be policy offices or contract offices uh, and the companies, they always say, well, I was talking to contracting officer X or you know, the senior guy in, a, in an activity, and she told me, don't worry, you go ahead and do it X, Y, Z way or don't worry. Uh, if you don't answer that question, it won't matter. Well, the reality is that if it's not in that solicitation or subsequently for performance, if it's not in the contract, then all of those representations, all of those comments just don't matter. And that's why I said the oral comments aren't worth the paper they're printed on. The U.S. government contracting, as your listeners will know, is very specific and very rules-based. And so you'll see these disclaimers all the time. You see it from individuals, my personal view, not an official view. You see it on the agencies. If it's, you know, only the contracting officer can make a change. And they're there for a reason. They're there to protect the government's interest, but they're also there to help contractors know exactly what they have to do. Comes back to my very first rule. Know the contracting rules because everyone assumes you do. Yeah. Not worth the paper they're written on. I love that. Uh, so the entire read the entire solicitation and the contract you win. So I'm assuming these are different. They are different. I mean, the solicitation is the government's request for a proposal or response from the contractor community. And it's the government's responsibility to spell out in some detail what it is they want and the terms and conditions under which that transaction is going to take place. That's why we have a federal acquisition regulation. That's why we have agency supplements that all help define with a great deal of specificity and particularity what the government's uh, business relationship is with the private sector. Uh, Every part of a solicitation matters. Some matter more than others, but every part is important. And that's why I encourage people to not just read the statement of work and what they have to do. That'll be important for performance, but there are contract clauses, there are requirements, there are certifications. All of these help an agency decide who they wanna do business with and who they will do business with. If you're not reading the solicitation from cover to cover and maybe more than once, and if you're not staying up with changes to that solicitation over time, and some agencies have modifications to the solicitation, you've gotta stay on top of those Otherwise, you're not going to submit a proposal that is even eligible for a, a valuation, 
let alone eligible for award. Okay, so I've seen, I don't read contracts or RFPs with any regularity at all. I try to avoid it. I'm a marketing guy, so all that stuff confuses me. I call Alan and say, what the hell? Uh, But I know that certain certifications are becoming more and more prolific on these documents. Uh, CMMC probably will be once they figure out what the hell it is. But right now, another one that that is extremely important is FedRAMP. And number one, do you help companies through that process? Does your firm engage in that side of things? We we help companies. The answer, the short answer is yes. The longer answer is I don't. We don't have the technical expertise in house to do that. So we we partner with others who have the technical expertise. But yes, we help coach companies through that FedRAMP process both from a a policy, uh, what they need to do from a compliance, and then engage uh, technical support for us to help companies walk through the the details of the FedRAMP certification. Okay, so I guess my other side is FedRAMP has now been with us several years. Am I accurate in assuming that it is becoming more prevalent on contracts, particularly those involving, uh, you know, heavy IT security requirements. You're absolutely right. And the reason for that, Mark, is that agencies are looking for uh, someone else to do their work. Uh, contracting officers are overwhelmed in, uh, in this area for information technology. Uh, many of them don't have the in-house skills to do that. So FedRAMP, and in fact, many of the certifications uh, that exist are really a surrogate for someone else doing a validation of capabilities of a company that a federal agency can rely on. And FedRAMP certification is uh, almost a government-wide seal of approval uh, for agencies, uh, others who are buying. If you've got a FedRAMP certification for your IT system, uh, that is often relied on exclusively by other buying activities for a good a quality check. Good housekeeping seal of approval. Yes, sir. Yeah. You said something there that triggered uh, a thought. I mean, you and I were talking about, you know, ancient history prior to the show, like the 1980s and 90s. So uh, you said the, the contracting officers were overworked. Well, we all know this, but what a lot of people don't know is why. And part of the reason why goes back to the acronym soup of when you were probably on the Hill, FASA, FARA, ITMRA, FARA in particular, or was it FASA in particular, loosened the rules for contracting and eliminated a lot of positions. Is Number one, is my memory correct? Uh, and comments, please. Yes, it's uh, in part correct. There was a, a big push by some to uh, reduce the number of what one member of Congress called shoppers. He characterized contracting officers as shoppers in order to demean them in some way. Uh, but look, the, the federal workforce has not been immune to the, the, what, the economics in the, in the country. And so there has been a, an ebb and flow of contracting officers. It's been difficult for the US government to attract and retain government contracting officers. We talked at the outset of the show about the rapid pace of change 
and that's been a challenge for some. And so, yes, Congress has been involved. They've loosened the rules. They've tightened the rules. They've uh, tried to encourage buying on commercial products and services uh, to the extent possible. And so all of these changes have put a burden on both the program offices and the contracting officers uh, as funds have gr grown and they have grown in contracts over time. Fewer and fewer contracting officers are managing a larger and larger portfolio of work. And that too has put a strain on them. Also, we're losing an infrastructure around many of the support contracts, the support uh, personnel. So contracting officers not only have a larger portfolio, uh, but they also have to do their own work. There are fewer supervisors and fewer administrative staff. Well, that kind of sucks, but that's, but it that's is, a legal it, term. I use that occasionally, but you feel free to use it as well. <laughs> it's not a legal term. Um, all right. So uh, rule five, be sure multiple people are on the receiving end of all government communications. Are you talking about industry side? Yes. It, uh, it surprises me, even in smaller companies, that uh, they designate only one person is is on the receiving end for information. And there are some very strict deadlines for response or for actions, or worse, for uh, corrective actions, administrative responses. And if only one person is seeing this, then there's a risk that uh, nobody is seeing it. If you're busy, if you're on vacation, if you leave the company, uh, and if, if there's no other source, I can't tell you how many phone calls I've had to make to government agencies pleading with them to say, you know, Amtower and company only had Mark getting the information. That was a mistake. They should have had somebody else, but they didn't. And Mark was on vacation. Please give me an extra day, two days a week. And sometimes they can do that, but sometimes there's no flexibility. Seven days to respond, otherwise something happens automatically and you can't unscramble those uh, actions. So by all means, have multiple people on the receiving end, uh, even for the most routine of matters. Yeah, I've been on the receiving end of phone calls where they say, you know, the the document, the RFP is released on a Friday and the uh, responses due Monday. I I think that happens on rare occasion, but I don't think it's a normal circumstance. Yeah, but it, it, it is not so unusual, but it, it is common that something will come out on Monday for a response on Tuesday or Wednesday. And if you happen to be ill or if you happen to be tied up doing something else or away from the office, uh, if you're the only person that's seeing that may miss some very significant opportunities, responses to uh, notices, uh, CPARS reviews cure notices, all of these things are very time specific under the federal rules. Cool. All right. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm with Alan Chavotkin of Nichols Lou, N-I-C-H-O-L-S-L-I-U.com. And uh, Alan and I will return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Alan Chavotkin. Alan and I go way back. We've both been in this market a long time. We even, before the show, we referenced a financial program that was popular in the 70s and 80s. So 
uh, we, where we're repository. We're waiting for Jeopardy to have the category on government contract minutiae. Um, and Alan would kick some butt. Uh, that's another legal phrase. So your next law, if you have teaming agreements, joint ventures, or subcontractors, I love this. Be prepared for the honeymoon, the separation, and the divorce. Take it away. Everybody, these are normal practices in the GovCon community. We, we see them all the time. Teaming agreements are set up as you put your bidding teams together. Uh, joint ventures are formed to pursue significant opportunities to multiply the capabilities of firms and increase the chance of winning. And everybody anticipates everything working smoothly. Regrettably, my experience, both uh, from the Professional Services Council and here at Nichols Lou, is that uh, too frequently, not enough thought is put into what happens if something doesn't go well. And so that's why one of my rules of success is be prepared for the honeymoon, and that's always luxurious, but anticipate what could go wrong if there is to be a separation or worse, a dispute, a divorce, where you have to break apart a relationship. A little bit of pre-planning and a little bit of terms and conditions in these agreements can solve a lot of headaches and save companies an awful lot of money should they occur. Nobody okay. plans for it, nobody wants them to happen, but they, they happen just too frequently in the marketplace to ignore them. If the separation occurs during the performance of the contract, what happens? Well, depending on the, on the position of the respective parties, you know, if it's a prime contractor and a subcontractor uh, isn't performing, uh, the prime contractor can certainly uh, replace that uh, non-performing subcontractor, notifies the government uh, and moves on. If that subcontractor is a critical component uh, or a small business, there are other processes and notifications that have to take place. But nobody is forced to continue work with uh, an underperforming or non-performing partner. Uh, the government wouldn't do that, and certainly companies should not do that. So a little bit of preparation in the event that occurs is just valuable. There are steps you can take to um, keep the company on notice, and you should be keeping them informed if you're not satisfied with performance. Don't wake up one morning and say, boy, for the last year, they've been so bad, I can't tolerate it anymore, and I've got to do something about it. Stay on top of performance. Uh, keep your customers informed of your concerns about performance, as well as the client, the customer, uh, the uh, company, and be prepared to take action if necessary. Well, that leads to your next rule, too. Perform, 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 comply, comply, comply. Two different uh, elements here. You know, government uh, is soliciting the private sector to provide goods and services, and they expect performance, at least minimum performance required by the contract. And so, I mean, you should not go into a contract, uh, shouldn't bid on a solicitation, and, and shouldn't accept an award of a contract if you're not capable of performing. It's too late after you've won the award to go figure out, now what do I need to do to perform? So too with compliance, and compliance is different in my view from performance. Compliance is following all the rules. Remember those terms and conditions of the business transaction that we talked about earlier, uh, whether they be post-award certifications, reporting requirements, other things, all associated with the contract, 
but not necessarily the performance of the specific statement of work called out. Okay. Rule eight, work at risk is risky. Is this a trick question? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's not. Uh, but here again, the, you know, building on all of the other things, if you're a contractor, you're supposed to do the work that's called for in the contract. And most contracts don't want you to do other work. Sometimes funding is a little bit behind the, the curve, behind where performance is. And I hear all the time the companies say, well, the, com- the contracting officer says, why don't you just go ahead and do that on your own and I'll catch up with you later and we'll make it all good. Come back to my earlier rule, uh, or oral comments are not worth the paper they're printed on. Most contracting officers aren't trying to screw over the contractor, another legal term here, but uh, sometimes stuff happens outside of the, their own scope of authority. So uh, work at risk, sometimes necessary for contract performance in order to hold to a schedule, in order to uh, fill gaps where the Congress has been slow in filling appropriations, uh, but understand it's risky and the government is under no obligation to reimburse you uh, for the cost and expenses that you incurred in performing work at risk uh, until they ratify that through subsequent action. Sometimes okay. it comes quickly, sometimes it doesn't come at all. Right. So I have advised companies, probably stupidly, because I'm not a uh, procurement person. I have said, you know, don't add work unless it's within the scope of the contract. But that may be stupid advice if even within the scope, there's no funds for it. This is a a second area, uh, government fiscal law. The scope of contract is a legal term. And it really involves what is within the what we call the four corners of the contract. But there's also a set of laws and guidance regulations on the following the money. And you and I both know how important it is to follow the money. Oh yeah. So there's a scope question about the money. Is the money available for that function? Uh, you can't do research and development under a procurement contract. You can't do procurement under a research and development contract. So even though, so we have to look at scope both from a contractual standpoint, as well as from an appropriations law, fiscal law issue. And that's why this work at risk has multiple facets to it. Tried to summarize it generally in the, in this one phrase. Okay. The other part of that, and, and this is going to be iffy because you're not a contracting officer either, but if if you tell the contracting officer I can't do that, could that impact your CPARS? Well, certainly could. Uh, when, when, well, let's be clear. If you tell the contracting officer you can't perform a core piece of the contract that you've signed up for, that's one thing, uh, and that could affect your CPARS. Sure. Uh, if you say that work at risk, I mean, many companies have very elaborate internal procedures to approve that work at risk. So it's not just a company contracting a person or a company program that takes it up to senior leadership in a business to make sure that the, even the the work at risk is as well-defined, the scope is well-defined. So the company knows its exposure. 
I, I've not heard too many examples where a company's decision to work at risk in advance of approval uh, has adversely affected the company. Uh, but then again, there are tens of thousands of CPARS ratings out there that I never see and I never hear about. They don't come to me for corrective actions. Sure. Understood. All right. So uh, that brings us to something you've just alluded to. Be sure you get paid for the work you do. It's amazing to me. Uh, most companies are in the business, yes, to serve the, the federal government, yes, to serve the missions, uh, but in or- but also to get paid for the work that they've done, and properly so. And so you should be prepared to invoice for the work you've done. That means you have to have the pro- the systems, the capabilities to invoice. Comes back to my rule about reading the solicitation and reading the contract you won, because every contract will lay out how to invoice the government, what information the government needs, and how you're going to get paid. You know, in the last decade or maybe uh, six, seven years now, uh, almost all of the invoicing going into the government is being done electronically. Payments are made electronically. So you just want to make sure that you've got that capability to invoice electronically so the government can process those as expeditiously as they can. They don't want to do manual processing unless they have to, and that just takes more time, but ultimately plan to get paid. I I also mention this because there are some unique circumstances, uh, unfortunately, that come up periodically, such as the risk of a shutdown or the um, other circumstances where funding is in jeopardy and knowing how to get paid and being paid for work in advance of those uh, tragic situations like a shutdown uh, can help bridge the cash flow issues for companies. If you miss some of those early windows, you'll be sitting on uh, an aging uh, receipt uh, until the government gets more funding. Okay. I'm not going to ask for names here, but do you recommend to your clients that they buy some of those packages that are available that that do the invoicing as the procurement goes along? I'm very familiar with many of them. Uh, Some of them are very good. Some of them are very expensive. It really depends on the nature of the company, the nature of the work they're doing. If you've got almost all fixed price work, if you've got almost all um, single transaction type work, uh, you probably don't need a very sophisticated package. But it's always good to talk to be talking to the financial advisors, whether it's about these payment systems or your own financial advisors at uh, banks or uh, other institutions uh, to make sure you're aligned with them. It, it reduces your lines of credit. It reduces your cost and it makes you a stronger financial company. Cool. We're going to take our last break and return right after these messages. You're listening to Alan Shavatkin on Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network, and Alan and I will return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm having a great time here with my guest, Alan Shavatkin of Nichols Lou. Uh, again, Alan and I have known each other a long time, so this this is like old home week for us. We're we're sitting at a bar. He's drinking whatever he drinks, and I'm having a root beer, or or a uh, a, a Perrier, because because that's 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 what I drink. Um, Alan, um, rule ten 
engage competent professional legal and financial advisors. Of course, you left out marketing, but, um, you know, I can't tell you how many times people have called me and asked me legal questions, contracting questions, financial questions. And, you know, I'm glad they call because I can aim them at people who can answer those questions, but I am not that person. Obviously, you have some thoughts here. Well, it's it's important in any business to have, uh, we can expand the list. So competent professional advice, uh, legal. This is a very, uh, the federal government contracting process is rule bound. We've talked about it. The rules change all the time. Having competent legal support that can answer questions. It doesn't have to be expensive. Uh, don't have to fear uh, that advice. It's the same with the financial. It's true with marketing. It's true with accounting, uh, depending on the complexity and the nature of the business. Uh, look, in this government contract world, uh, mistakes can be very costly, not just financial, uh, but reputational uh, and even uh, civil or criminal uh, penalties associated with it. So having competent advice, professional advice, particularly on the legal, financial, but also in accounting and marketing and other areas to help you navigate through this uh, morass of the federal marketplace. Uh, there's just no substitute for it. And it, uh, it's not a cure-all, but taking uh, being proactive is far better than being reactive. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Because if, if you're reactive, you're probably neck deep in something you don't want to be in before you you reach out or figure out that you have to reach out and then you make your desperate call to Mark and go, help me. And Mark says, well, I'll introduce you to somebody who can help you. And, so, in, our, and in our world, the, the cost goes up when the urgency goes up. It's not because urgent matters are more expensive than uh, prospective matters. It's just, it's a function of time. And right. They aren't in the queue. You know, if you need to be bumped up, it's going to cost, brother. We we have a couple of additional rules here, and I want to touch on one of them because it's really important. And it, you know, it comes back to the fact that this is a relationship-driven market. It always has been. It always will be. When I speak at APMP, uh, which I've done probably a dozen times over the last 15 or 16 years, the biggest problem is you know, are we going to pursue this bid? No, the contracting office doesn't know us. So your rule is get to know your contracting officer and have multiple methods on how to reach him or her and their supervisors. So I'm talking here, your point on the marketing and the visibility around is absolutely right in advance uh, so that uh, you, you raise the visibility of the firm. My the reason I have this rule and talk about it is when things go wrong or there is a risk, where there's an issue that arises or a question that arises, knowing how to be in touch with either the contracting officer or the legal shop uh, can get you closer to uh, those answers and, and even more so avoid uh, adverse actions and maybe forestall adverse actions. There are also circumstances when you have a dispute or an option comes due and you don't know whether the government's going to take it or maybe they forgot about it, of knowing who to call. You know, in the federal government, 
there was always somebody who was in a position active. It's not the contracting officer, the supervisor or something. And I've seen experiences during the shutdown where some companies had no idea who how to get in touch with their contracting officer, whether they were working or not. So this is an important, not just from a relationship standpoint, uh, but also from a mitigation standpoint. And to come back to your questions on the on the social network, absolutely. And, and I'll put a plug in for your work here um, because uh, and this is a highly competitive marketplace uh, and uh, companies need to make sure that they're known, not just from their past performance ratings and skills, but even known in the marketplace so that agencies can uh, go out and, and request information from them, RFIs, solicitations, and others. It's also helpful in the competitive analysis to watch what's transacting in the marketplace, what other companies are saying. So uh, it's, not a, it's not a single solution, but an important over part of an over comprehensive strategy for a company to be on social media and watching what's said. Said, said that what you say on that social media is also important as what you're reading on that social media. Yeah, and it's intriguing. My friend, Anna Ehrman, who's now over at DHS and their science and technology directorate, uh, has on her, she's a contracting person, uh, and she has on her profile in the headline, this is my personal page. I am not commenting on behalf of the agency. And I I love that kind of disclaimer because, um, you know, LinkedIn is not an official document release place for contracting anyway, but she's clarifying it in a way that very few do. And um, it's not that she's saying anything controversial, but there's some personal stuff that she does on her profile. She's She pals around with my friend Judy Bratt and they are rock climbers, so they are the federal rock stars, um, literal rock stars. So, um, and there, there's there's probably fifteen or twenty of those people, maybe more. I don't know because I don't I don't climb rocks. Um, <clears throat> but uh, the the whole social thing, you know, I do the census of feds on LinkedIn every year, and I've identified five hundred and sixty federal offices, operating divisions, agencies, and departments that have company pages on LinkedIn. Mm. And in January, uh, I was tracking 2.72 million feds on LinkedIn, including a boatload of contracting officers uh, who have their own group on LinkedIn. Um, So, you know, if, if they're listening, they should take a look at Anna's profile and consider, you know, maybe throwing out that disclaimer, even if they're not commenting on procurements your thoughts please well you're absolutely right uh, you know we've addressed some of these uh, many of the agencies use the linkedin because they know that many contractors are on that so they use that as a as a method of disseminating some of their policy statements uh, links to budgets or uh, you know statements by uh, agency leaders uh, or procurement information you know watch out in you know we it, we anticipated a, you know, a, a solicitation in mid-May. Uh, again, not gospel. It's you know those comments aren't worth necessarily the paper they're printed on, as I, we talked about earlier. But there's useful information 
and so many companies are starving for a mechanism to get that information. LinkedIn is a valuable piece of millions of contractors and contractor employees are there. I'm not surprised to learn that uh, thousands of uh, government con U.S. government contractor uh, contracting officers and others around LinkedIn as well. Yeah, uh, several years back, maybe a half a dozen years ago, I did a presentation at the National Contract Management Association, and I probably had close to a hundred contracting officers in my session, and the topic was how to vet contractors in the anonymous mode. So. You know, the question I get frequently is, yeah, they might be there, but they probably don't use LinkedIn. Wrong answer, guys. Uh, you know, they're there. They use it. You may not see them because they may go perpetually in the anonymous mode. And this is an evolving marketplace, uh, new initiatives, new methods for the government soliciting uh, and awarding contracts. And it, it's been... Uh, you know, in the research area, we started out with a very small amount of uh, contracts awarded through other transactions authority. Uh, NASA was the first to have that authority back in the 1950s, uh, but now uh, multiple agencies have it. Those don't follow the normal procurement rules. And if you're not tuned into the mechanisms and the methodologies that the government is using, you're missing business opportunities. And uh, Staying on top of those, knowing the contracting rules, that was my rule number one. And my last rule of making sure that you've got competent professional advice who is keeping up with that if you can't. Yeah. And and again, you know, a lot of the OTA information has been discussed on LinkedIn. The Cyber information is frequently discussed on LinkedIn. It doesn't mean it's gospel, but there's valuable information there identifying legitimate sources. Final thoughts, my friend? Mark, this is, uh, I really appreciate it. Enjoy the opportunity. Uh, like you said, we go back two centuries. And so that's a, a good opportunity. Uh, this is a great federal marketplace. If you think about it, the over $600 billion awarded annually by federal agencies across the board uh, in the purchase of goods and services. Uh, but it is an, un an unforgiving marketplace. Uh, so, the expectations are you'll know the rules, you'll follow the rules, uh, and stay on stay on top of the changing rules. What I've tried to do here is lay out some of the experiences, uh, distill some of the experiences that I've had over those two centuries into a set of rules there uh, that could guide companies and helpfully guide uh, agencies as well in this marketplace. Been a pleasure, and I look forward to stay following and up. Hey, we're going to do this again, my friend. So Alan Shavodkin, again, uh, partner at Nichols Lou, N-I-C-H-O-L-S-L-I-U.com. Don't forget about the Pub K group. Uh, Alan, thanks. This is not my day job. I do advise companies on all aspects of marketing, but I specialize on social networking, particularly exclusively LinkedIn content marketing and building subject matter expert positions. LinkedIn is incredibly important in this arena. And if you're not using it fully, call me, uh, drop me a line, markamtower at gmail.com or find me on LinkedIn. You can also find my friend Alan on LinkedIn. Uh, so Alan, again, thank you. Thanks for listening to Amtower Off Center. 
You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.